On today's More Than a Test, we have Carl Rectanis. He is the founder of Learn Platform. Learn Platform measures how much schools use and how successfully they use different ed tech products. You're going to be shocked at the numbers of how many products are in our schools right now. Learn Platform was acquired by Instructure recently, and so he'll give us a lot of information about his journey as an entrepreneur and what he thinks we should actually be buying for our schools. Carl, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Laura. Um, I really appreciate you making time. We have so much to cover, um, but we're going to start with the job you're doing now, which is leading K-12 strategy at um, Instructure. Tell me about Instructure. What do you, I mean, I, I have a little bit of information because I just got my MBA, so I know what Canvas is, but can you kind of give us like the elevator pitch on Instructure? Sure. Most uh, most folks have heard of Canvas. It's the most ubiquitous learning management system, uh, both in K-12 and higher ed uh, in the U.S. Also has a pretty significant reach in, um, in international markets as well. And it was sort of the flagship uh, product. But Instructure is uh, publicly traded, uh, completely education focused. Uh, company that uh, developed uh, Canvas, uh, the learning management system, but uh, they also provide uh, mastery uh, uh, assessment tools that are really focused on competency uh, based, as well as other uh, technologies uh, around credentialing, around uh, improving uh, education, uh, both for uh, K-12, higher ed, non-traditional, uh, into the workforce. Um, and uh, in uh, December, um, Learn Platform and, uh, and Instructure decided to get together. And so they also offer uh, the Learn Platform EdTech Effectiveness System, which complements uh, the other tools and technology that they offer. Um, and now I get to lead, like you said, uh, K-12 strategy globally uh, for Instructure. And we're really focused on how we expand better teaching and learning and support uh, learners and educators uh, all over the world. Okay, so and if you're on the Instructure website, exactly what you said kind of happens. There's so much to see. It feels like you could click everywhere all the time. What's the common thread? Like what's really driving Instructure right now? You know, I think it's fair and everybody understands that especially after COVID, learning is now tech enabled. Um, when I, uh, so I was a teacher and administrator here and overseas. Um, I remember about 10 years ago, the question was like, will we ed tech? Um, in fact, Canvas and Instructure launched um, because uh, from students in Utah who were frustrated with their learning management system that it didn't really serve educators and the teachers the best way. Um, and so they built a better uh, solution and uh, clearly they did a great job because it expanded pretty rapidly and has continued to. Um, I think the unifying focus across everything is, you know, a, you know, lifelong learning from the beginning uh, of our, you know, existence now ongoing. It's not just school years, um, you know, elementary and secondary. It's not just uh, post-secondary, it's lifelong learning. And so the combination of lifelong learning and that learning is now tech enabled 
is driving an approach uh, that we call the Instructor Learning Platform that provides a holistic view and makes it easier. Like learning is hard, um, education <laughs> is hard. Um, and so, um, and it's been very siloed traditionally. So if we can provide open, safe, um, effective, evidence-based tools, technologies, services, and supports for teachers and learners, they will grow more quickly. They will uh, succeed in uh, work uh, and life. Okay, so what I feel like I'm hearing you say is you believe that technology is making it possible for us to meet learners where they are and give them the tools that they need to grow, right? If, you, if you're not doing well in a classroom setting, if you're not doing well you know, or you don't have the time or the ability to be in a classroom, that there are technologies making it so that there's access for everyone. Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, so um, absolutely. And let me, it's not just me, right? The data is really yeah, clear. Before uh, COVID hit, there was an expansion of education technology. Um, you know, the average school district was using about 700 different ed tech products per month in, uh, in 2018, 2019. post uh, COVID, that number expanded and exploded to over 1,400 different products are being used in most school districts every month. Most students engaged with 140 different ed tech tools last year um, wow. during the school year. Most educators had to engage with almost 150 just to do their job. Learning, like to be successful, it is tech enabled and it's not enough to just be, you know, a learning management system in one place. That's happening all over the place. That doesn't include like real world learning at museums and, and skill building within internships and all those things that are happening that are very valid. And so, you know, the opportunity and the need is to connect the dots so it's less siloed, but it also supports an ongoing growth that we're all going through all the time. That's really interesting. Um, I, you, you referenced that 140. I saw the article that you said um, 143 tech tools is the average for students in a year, which blew my mind. I, like if you had asked me to guess, I maybe would have guessed 30. Um, and so and, and one of the things that you recommend is principals and district leaders need to think about um, products that, you know, how much are kids using it? How often are they using it? And is it safe? And the, the one that got me was, is it working? Like, are they learning? And yeah. the reason I thought about that was we talked to someone from SRI recently and he was saying like, most of the products aren't working. Like most of what we like thought kids would get from these, like they're just not growing. You know, what, what do you say to that? How do we know if a tech product is working? Yeah. So, um, it's, this has been our, um, my focus for the last decade. Um, you, you know, uh, I mentioned that I was in schools. I was a teacher. I became an administrator. Actually, I became a CFO for schools because I felt like the back office was screwing up what we were trying to do in the classroom. Um, and I wanted to understand how we could get more resources to the things that were, you know, working and helping my students. And so learn those systems became, uh, got the entrepreneurial bug and have been working in this space for some time. Um, most recently, you know, launching Learn Platform with a mission of helping expand equitable access to the tools, teaching, and technology that works best for them. And so we've done a ton of work on this, 
Um, and really, uh, it scales over time, right? Um, the U.S. Department of Education, uh, which I'm excited, has really evolved the thinking in the market, has outlined four levels of evidence that uh, can help any education intervention uh, define and build evidence for its effectiveness. And the first step there is having a logic model. Um, you, you know, is, is demonstrate rationale is saying, hey, if you have these problems in these situations, you know, and you do this thing, you will likely get these near term, midterm and, you know, long term effects. And um, frankly, like that was missing from a lot of the conversations 10 years ago. Right. Like, what should we expect if we do this? Um, certainly in things like the science of reading, we know so much about the science of reading, but those weren't necessarily applied, thought, thought out, you know, delivered. Now, in the Every Student Succeeds Act, there's also two or three, other, there's three other levels of evidence. The next one is a, a considered promising, that is the ability, like, if you do more of something, will you get more of it, right? A comparative study. Um, you've got these, uh, the next is called moderate evidence, which is um, a, a a quasi-experimental study in the in the research parlance, but what that really means is control group and uh, intervention group. You know what happens to each and what's the effect, and then of course everybody has heard of the randomized control trial. So the only difference between a moderate and the strong is randomly assigning who gets what. Now. That has been the way we've done things for a long time in education, traditional research, and in medicine, randomized controlled trials. But there's a lot of question marks, and it's very expensive. Like, how do I choose which kids? Oh, by the way, I can't choose. I just have to randomly <laughs> assign. That's, uh, you know, there's ethical questions. There's all sorts of things. So, the, you know, what's great is now over the last four years, and especially with uh, the most recent fiscal, uh, in, 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 you know, infusion from, uh, the every, uh, from ESSER and into education post COVID is schools and districts have this framework for how to understand what should happen. That is level four or, you know, demonstrates rationale, how to start building evidence and then to quickly and at a much lower cost, start to evaluate, like, are we getting those outcomes? You, you know, how's this working? The beautiful thing, and we launched Learn Platform to drive those decisions. We we built a technology we call Impact, which uh, stands for Integrating Metrics, Producing Analytics on Classroom Technology, uh, like education and research. We love a good acronym. Um, right. But what it does is integrate usage, student achievement, uh, costs, teacher feedback, this data all in one place and runs the equivalent of a third party evaluation in a matter of seconds and minutes instead of months and years. And because of that, you can deliver, you know, visualizations to help people figure out, Hey, Hey, what are we using? And you know, when we pay for it, do we use it? And when we use it for which students in which situations does it appear to be having an impact? To be able to have that data that quickly, like at the same time for kids that that are these kids, not kids that look like these kids three years from now, but have that right now is like game changing. And I think we're on the forefront of really evidence building in meaningful ways. So if we're on the forefront, how many districts right now are going through this process? How many are actually analyzing if they use the product and if it's working? 
Yeah, so uh, it's worth noting that the Every Student Succeeds Act requires every district and state to have and use that money for evidence-based interventions. That is new. So like all of their funding should be have at least one of those four levels of evidence. But this is relatively new muscle that they're building. They're doing it in different ways. So there's significant capacity building that has to happen. But in short, what you can see is, you, you know, large districts, small districts, like all of them are thinking about it and doing it. Um, you're starting to see, for example, Chicago Public Schools for the first time, you know, is requesting evidence from all their vendors as part of their RFP. The state of New Mexico, you can't get on their purchasing list until you have at least level three or above. LA Unified for the first time has asked for all of its existing providers to provide evidence, you know, so, while we work with, you know, at Learn Platform organizations serving about 10 million or more students in particular with our technology, it's really ubiquitous. Um, and certainly Canvas and others, I mean, 30 to 40 million, you know, students and teachers are engaging. This is one of the reasons we got uh, together was to really expand visibility to this evidence. And then you've got hundreds of providers who, um, you, you know, in every realm, whether it's tutoring or literacy or you name it, are really ha being asked, is it working? And so we're engaging as a third party evaluator as well to support, you know, both sides of the market to get on the same page. That's really great. So do you think we're going to have kind of a reckoning in the near future of like the sorting of products and the sorting of vendors of either evidence-based or not? Because I think there's been a lot of great marketing in education, but evidence I could go both ways on. Yeah, no, um, we, the, the or, this market has valued sizzle over steak for some time. Um, <laughs> but I think the, uh, I think here's the thing that I think is very real. Um, there's a significant fiscal cliff approaching um, over the next couple of years. We know as we work with district and institution administrators, they have said very clearly, look, we were in emergency response. We looked for every opportunity and option to improve and respond. But right, but at some point, we can't pay for all of this stuff uh, after uh, in the next couple of years. So right now, we are actively engaging. We are more likely to keep the stuff that's effective, and we have to be able to make the case for why we should keep or uh, get rid of uh, different interventions. So absolutely, I think we're heading uh, to a pretty significant reckoning around evidence. There are some market drivers that uh, do that. I also think we're heading towards significant innovation um, and proliferation and improvement in decision-making there too, which uh, is a good thing because uh, we needed it. Okay, let me ask you two questions on that. So first of all, um, if we go through this reckoning, right now we say 143 products. Do you think that number will stay the same or do you think that number will change for students? How much will they interact with things? Yeah, so I, uh, so anecdotally, uh, I'll answer two ways. One, anecdotally, as we work with districts and states, they are absolutely overwhelmed with sort of the sprawl is how they, uh, is the kindest way they put it, right? So uh, I know that as we engage with, you know, superintendents, CTOs, chief academic officers, they are trying to figure out how to limit or, um, you know, get rid of things off the edges. I That points to the numbers likely going down. 
Two, every year, uh, from a, that's anecdotal. From a data perspective, we're going to release, uh, you know, the end of year uh, EdTech Top 40, which we've released for the last uh, number of years. Um, and so that'll tell us uh, what the trends look like. Um, Post-COVID, what we saw was uh, it went up and it, it, stayed, it stayed basically the same. It'll be interesting this summer. That'll likely come out in June, um, uh, you, you know, to see what we see. I've seen some early data, but, uh, you, you know, we'll, we'll see what the data shows. Well, okay. And so then you keep going back to do they use it and does it work, right? Are the two things that yeah. we keep saying are most important. And one of the things that we struggle with at Amira is – Yes, people use our product, but the difference is, is kids read out loud to our product. Um, they don't click anything. And teachers tell us, like, I would use it more, but my class is, like, I want my kids to be silent. And so I want them clicking on things. And so the problems we're trying to solve are, are somewhat difficult. And I, I'm just curious, like, especially when you look at K-12 strategy, K-5 strategy feels overwhelmed with products, which we wouldn't expect. What do, what do you yeah. think about that? You know, this is so hard to engage with on a general, like a broad generalization, because we one of the other things we know is that it's inequitable, right? Like that people engage in different ways. There's different student groups. There's different individuals, you know, that are happening. One thing to differentiate and I, you know, applaud Amira and this even, you know, wrestling with this question is, you know, a lot of times there's a difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy is what makes sense, you know, in the petri dish, uh, in the lab, and you know, the the science says this is how it works. Effectiveness is what happens in the real world, and um, you know, the criticality of understanding evidence and effectiveness in the real world, like those are very real engagements, those are the questions that we have to answer, right? How, if, if I'm an educator in elementary, you know, and I prefer a quiet class, is that just my adult preference or is that the best way to learn, right? How do we, how do we change and update? What should this intervention, if it's being successful, uh, look like? I, was, I mentioned being an administrator. There were certain times, like I, I, in different schools, a quiet class was a warning zone. Uh, you know, like that was a red flag. We were like, wait, what's going on for some, when we were doing project-based learning, depending on what, you know, like, oh, now a loud class, like loved it, but it depends on what you're trying to do, what the, you know, what that focus is, how that matches. I'm hopeful that the combination of being able to provide evidence and data and information to inform how we implement uh, these tools together to help providers and educators be on the same page. If we can provide that information at the time of decision-making, then hopefully we're doing what's best for students and learning, not necessarily, you know, and that may be different than the way we learned uh, from the beginning. Okay. And so, um, one of the things that we're learning is, is districts are, are slow to change. I think COVID changed that a little bit. Um, when you look at this change that you're talking about, this revolution around efficacy, do you think that we're going to be faster to change than we have in other things? Or is education just always going to be the trudge that it is? We are on the front edge of significant transformation in education. Um, I think we have been a part of it over the last little bit. 
Um, I am uh, hopeful. Uh, not I, I, I don't say that because, you know, it's, it's fun and it's innovative. And like, I've worked in this space for a long time. I say it because the schools and districts that are succeeding and feel like it right now are transforming, right? If we waste a crisis um, and sort of go back to the way it was before, we will continue to have, you know, a 40% disparity um, in engagement. Uh, across our tools, we will we will reinforce the silos that previously existed. But I think uh, as we think about you know the impacts of effective and safe um, uh, AI, uh, as we think about um, which will, uh, if done correctly, enhance the human experience, not replace it. That it will uh, you know the opportunity to evolve policy and regulation. This is a market driven by three things in this order. Fear, regulation, and aspiration. We talk about what's best for students, but first, it's, it's what we're afraid of. And right now, we're deeply afraid of losing all educators, which we should be. Um, we are, uh, but the second thing is regulation. We are required to do things. This is in schools and districts and institutions, okay? And so regulation is evolving. The U.S. Department of Ed just released guidance on evidence building and how, how, how to do it. Um, and then finally, aspiration, and that aspiration hasn't changed. We want what's best for students. We want what's best for all students. But now we've got tools and technology that wasn't there before that I think uh, we're going to see pretty significant and ongoing evolution. Um, I'm, I feel pretty confident about that, but we're excited to manage um, and analyze the data over the next few years and help folks uh, find the best way. Um, that really resonates with me. We asked teachers who use Amira, like, what is the best way to get you to use Amira more? And overwhelmingly, they told us district mandates. And then, they, you know, like the, the next one was like teacher inspiration, but number one was district mandates. So your point about regulation hits, hits real for me. Well, um, oh, and, great. Go ahead. And that, that regulation is uh, bending, the, the arc of that regulation is bending towards evidence, which uh, leads to uh, highly effective tools and technologies and teaching uh, practices. Uh, and that's an evolution that just wasn't there uh, 30 years ago. Okay, I have one more question about the study we talked about, the, re the thing that you wrote about, the 143, and then I want to talk about learning platform. So um, sure. you in the article, it says that number one was Google Suite, that that was the most popular, most used across districts, but number two was Kahoot, <laughs> which blew my mind. So what what's the deal with Kahoot? <laughs> well, so uh, the study you're referencing is uh, our EdTech Top 40. We do mid-year and annual uh, analysis of actual engagement with over 11,000 different education technology tools. Um, it was based on literally billions and billions of engagements across uh, a statistically valid sample across the U.S., um, and so we release uh, how engaging. It's no commentary on evidence, but you've got access. If you have access, then it's engagement. And engagement is a leading indicator of learning. It is not learning. One thing that you highlight, and there's a, predict, a particular uh, growth, not just with Kahoot, but generally um, with teacher and student engagement. Uh, what we found post-COVID, so if you look at those numbers from 2018, 2019, early 2020, you had a lot, a larger percentage of reference tools, 
um, uh, a larger per percentage is sort of sit and get uh, some gaming uh, individual stuff. Post COVID, a much larger percentage of uh, tools and technologies that grew on that tool, not just Kahoot, but Blookit and others, um, are, were really signaling student engagement between teachers and students was was moving online. They were engaging students in, in different ways, not just, and so reference materials started to go down uh, in terms of the amount of engagement. I think also the practicality of how you engage rapid fire, how often they're engaging with that stuff uh, is very real too. Um, but uh, certainly uh, astute, we certainly noticed that that student and teacher engagement happening not just in person, but online. Uh, we think that's what signaled uh, that big driver, both for Kahoot and others. I think that's really lovely to think about, like technology was driving teachers and, and students to be able to connect with each other, not just do things separately. And, and that that's why Kahoot was successful. That's neat to hear. Um, so the reason you're at Instructure now is that you founded, you built a company called Learn Platform. Um, will you tell me about about the start of that company? Well, first of all, what it was and or is as part of Instructure and, and why you built it? Yeah, so uh, Learn Platform, we launched after about a year and a half of due diligence in 2014. Um, to, uh, you know, our pitch at the time was we help you figure out what you're using that works. And uh, so I shared a little bit about the technology that we built, the rapid cycle evaluation. Uh, it also for school districts, the other piece of that is if you have great data, but no way to communicate it in a distributed school district or institution, it's the ivory tower. So the other part of the platform, it equips educators, parents, administrators. It feels almost like a research-based trip advisor. It helps them understand what all the tools are, which ones they can and can't use, what's approved. They have request workflows. I'd like to use this. I saw it at ISTE and I want to try it. Or, um, you know, all of that has traditionally been a, um, you know, buttonhole in the hallway or, uh, you know, a set of emails or some sort of homemade processes or wikis. And so we made it easier to do two things. One was build evidence and two, activate that more efficiently, manage all your contracts in one place, analyze what's being used and use that, get, uh, provide teachers a voice. They can grade any product um, in uh, the eight most important criteria for teachers when they try by and use these tools. So all this uh, basically, it wasn't the learning management system, right? Learning is where teachers and students are engaging and that LMS was being used. It was more the meta system, the system of record for all the other stuff and that LMS to understand how to get those tools, how to purchase them, how to request them, how to let parents know they were safe uh, with student data privacy. We launched this and uh, we said, hey, we help you figure out what you're using that works. And educators said, hey, that's great, but could you just tell us what we're using first? Because <laughs> uh, we don't even know that. And we said, yeah, yeah, it does that. I mean, that's part of it, but it also does this other thing. And in 2014, 15, they said, that's great, but could you just tell us what we're using first? And we, So we realized there was a much larger need and opportunity, which was make sense of the chaos and then help us make decisions. And so Learn Platform became an ed tech effectiveness system, sort of created this category, was the first to publish data on what was actually being used. 
and certainly uh, to really accelerate what traditional research has taken years to do and does good job. There's a real good place for traditional research, but it's mostly academic. It's mostly for the purposes of PhDs or others, not education decision makers or policymakers. And so we expanded school districts, states use our system. So the state of Connecticut vets every product for compliance with student data privacy laws there using Learn Platform. Every administrator can see what's approved and not approved, saves millions of dollars a year of processes. Um, we grew over that time period and post-COVID, ultimately we did exactly what we expected to do, which is um, started equipping providers who are now saying, oh, all these districts and states are asking me for evidence. And like, that's expensive, it takes too long, how do I do it? So we also offer something called evidence as a service. And we work with great providers. Um, we're honored to partner with Amira and the team uh, that's been super smart about thinking about learning science to build your own evidence internally. But we act as sort of a, a third party evaluator and validator of good work that's going on there. We also coordinate with the US Department of Ed against those four levels of evidence deliver badges so both districts, states, and providers can have the same trustworthy information and know with, a, with research independence very quickly. Um, we we were I, doing that work. You? Yeah. Okay. Well, I just have a question. So, I mean, what you're talking about, I think anybody could use, right? Any big company probably doesn't know all the things that they've bought. I know I have like my own little app for like, what am I subscribing to and trying to understand what am I using in my house? Um, and, and so I'm just curious, is there a nuance to education that makes this different? Or is it kind of the same as what you'd expect in any company? Or is there some things that you've learned about education and what we know about our tech products that's a little bit different? Well, one thing I've learned is uh, there's way easier ways to make a buck than in education, period. <laughs> um, right? Like, yeah, there, there are definitely very significant nuances. And as I mentioned, so my my mother was an educator, my father's like, I come from the education. It's So I have this bias um, but also an understanding of these nuances. I think it is regulated. We are talking about students. There's nuances of student data privacy and you know all these things, uh, academics, regulation, motivation for decision-making. Those, yes, education is different than say small and medium business or large enterprise corporations or you know hospitals and, and the medical space. Uh, where there's some great things going on and have very a lot of similarities, right? Highly regulated um, HIPAA instead of FERPA. Like there's a lot of uh, similarities. We decided to focus on education uh, because of A, uh, we thought the need was significant. B, after a year and a half, um, frankly, like I didn't want to start another company, but we didn't see anybody who could do it better than us. And so we felt like, Maybe that was hubris, but we we thought we should do it um, and see the the very severe equity challenges uh, that face education and are reinforced are long term and societal. Education has been asked to be sort of the social welfare safety net for all other structures. We saw that reinforced during COVID, and we felt like, hey, if we can if we can crack the toughest nut then uh, we will have had a huge impact on the world. I want to 
jump in on something you just said. You said the year and a half. You didn't want to build another company. There was this year and a half that you spent like looking into this. And we recently talked to um, Amit from Owl Ventures, and he was saying one of the biggest issues in education is everyone thinks that they're the first person to solve this problem, right? Like, but other people have tried. In that year and a half, like, what was the moment where you were like, "Oh shoot, we really have to do this"? Um, I uh, yeah, so. I kept approaching folks and saying, Hey, where should this fit? And, you know, if, if this were to exist, you know, would you use it? You know, how would you use it? Ask those questions, you know, and engaging with superintendents. I happen to be working with some of the largest education philanthropies, state leaders, uh, ed tech providers, venture funds, you know, asked hundreds of people this question. And, what we found was, uh, and I looked and talked through like, Hey, what if we put this here? Like what I I can bring you a business. You can have it like just run with it. And the two things that became clear, uh, were a, um, we needed to have a research first approach. And so having the psychometric power of my, uh, our founding researcher, a guy named Dr. Daniel Stanhope, um, and others on our team, um, you know, was was somewhat unique in the market at the time in 2012, 2013. Um, but the second was uh, this ability to have credibility. You had to be agnostic. You had to you had to have research independence. And most folks who had the capacity to do this were already selling content or already selling solutions or you know or, or you know challenged because they had business models in the traditional research area. And so it was actually at the ASU GSV conference. I ran a fail test. Basically, I told my wife, I said, when, look, either we're going to, you know, we're going to have about $250,000 worth of commitments to of people who are willing, able to invest in this like crazy idea, or we're not. Um, and if we do, then we got to make some tough decisions, go start a company. And if we don't, like, we're done. Like, it's the timing's not right. <laughs> Um, for better or worse, uh, you know, this was when ASU GSV was in Phoenix. I did 16 meetings a day for three days straight. And out of that was about 350K worth of um, soft commitments that uh, came to pass uh, within the next couple months. And, uh, you know, we just decided this, the world needed to have this. Yeah. And so one of the things I heard you say was like what you learned, some of what you learned was like you wanted to show them efficacy. You wanted to show them if it was working. And, and they were like, we just want to know what we have. <laughs> right. We just want to yeah. know what exists. Was it, Were there any other like really great learnings on this on this journey with Learn Platform? Wow. I mean, there have been so many. I mean, I think the um, in fact, I remember when we learned that was uh, so we were part of the Kaplan Techstars Accelerator. We had launched the product just a few months later uh, in a beta as we uh, our, our public release actually got uh, some notoriety and was part of the South by Southwest launch EDU, a global competition. And we met with dozens of district administrators. And that was when we said, oh, these guys they they don't just want to know if it works like they need to know this first um but one of the things that that taught us um was that over the following years we realized we were a capacity building and a change management organization it wasn't just a research subscription it wasn't just like an efficiency tool we were partnering with leaders who deeply cared about the aspirational 
but had regulatory and fear-based realities of how they wanted to change and evolve what they were doing for all their students. And that's capacity building. That's like, that's hard work. That's not just selling a subscription. And so um, I think for almost every education technology company that is driving something that's a non-commodity um, in this space, you end up being a capacity building partner um, with uh, schools, districts, and institutions. And, and that's, that's something that we've just come back to quite a bit. We hear this all the time in Amira about the science of reading, right? That like as schools are trying to make this transition from balanced literacy, that Amira has helped their their teachers make this like skills-based change, this phonics-based change because of the data we provide. And they, they, they want more of it, right? So what you're saying really resonates with me. Um, Carl, you're super passionate. Like you took this company from like almost never going anywhere to like thriving and changing the way districts think. And then, and then you, you sold to Instructure. Tell me a little bit about that decision when you knew it was time and, and, the, and the change that you've made there. Yeah. You know, as a teacher, um, I'm a bootstrapper. You know, we, we do what we can with what we've got, and we serve 20 to 150 individual students every day with limited resources. Like, that's um, where we come from. Um, but we realized early in this process, for us to be successful, we needed to be sort of a U.S. company that happened to be based in North Carolina, not you know, an individual. So we ended up doing some fundraising with uh, some smart folks. Uh, the Emerson Collective and New Markets Venture Partners led our Series A in 2015, uh, 18? 18. Um, time is a flat circle now. Um, <laughs> and, and through that, we recognized there was uh, growth and opportunity. We were successful in that growth. But um, about 18 months ago, we recognized, wait, there's, there's a much larger you know, need in the market. The market is now ready. Um, we can't get there with what we have. Um, we can, it'll just take a longer time. So we decided, uh, hey, we needed to upgrade both our leadership team and we need to put some money on the balance sheet uh, to be able to invest because we had a lot of inbound from higher education. We had international inbound that we just were struggling with, like, how do we serve this need and, you know, deliver for, a, a, you know, a, a rapidly growing U.S. market. And so we decided to launch a competitive process. Um, and, and we went through the same sort of process of saying, hey, are we going to, um, you know, we've got the team, we know what we want to do. If we had more money, we'd know what we do. Um, we would go after it. We're going to build out uh, in this way. But we also had a fair amount of strategic interest from others who um, brought uh, unique capacity and capabilities. And um, ultimately, we chose Instructure as much as they chose us. Uh, and, uh, you know, the reason for that was um, uh, certainly there were some finances involved, but primarily it was because we could get to market so much quicker. You know, Instructure, ubiquitous learning management system, uh, or highest percentage uh, U.S. and higher ed, uh, international presence, all the things we were going to build, the Instructure platform sort of already has. Um, and so the opportunity, the reality was, do we think we can get to market and help change the market as quickly as it needs to on our own? Are we better served that way? Or 
does this marriage, does this combination make sense? And we see a pathway for one plus one to equal five or six or seven here. Um, and everything I've seen since we got in here uh, has been uh, driven towards that. Um, I don't think there's any, no buyers or sellers remorse. We're partnering well and excited about what happens from here. So just a really good marriage, perfect timing, and you have the things that you need to support each other. That's great. Um, let me ask you one more question, and then we'll go to our rapid fire. So my last question here is, you are, in my opinion, deep in the weeds of what schools are using for technology. It is so much more than even I, I understood. Um, when you look at that, when you look at all the products and the things that are out there, like what, what is giving you hope? What makes you feel like we're moving in the right direction? Well, there's a, there's a lot, um, you know, and especially in uh, societally, when I look at things like most of the time, I spend more of my time being worried about things that are a challenge <laughs> rather than the things that give me hope, um, as many of us do. But I think one of the things that uh, I see happening all the time is really starting to focus on what's best for students, uh, learners and teachers as opposed to um, traditionally, like, you know, the fear of regulation. Um, the fact is we can get that information and data quickly enough to inform, and we're seeing great examples that are driving different policies, that are driving different regulation. You know, people actually do want to drive better outcomes, and um, we're most excited probably about the fact that, you know, the traditional um, challenge or trust gap between educators and solution providers um, is, is starting to, you know, fade, that, that there's true partnership, there's actual engagement, there's ways to safely share data, to, to do evidence building, to improve implementations, less finger pointing and more focusing is probably what's giving me the most hope right now. That really resonates with me too. As someone who, as a classroom teacher and principal, I was like against all the products, <laughs> anything right. they brought to my classroom. I was like, no, I'm not. No, like I can do it yeah. better. Um, I, I can see what you're saying about like, we're opening the doors and saying, all right, maybe these products have done this a little more thoughtfully. So that's great. That's great that you're seeing that too. And it's a bi-directional thing. Like it, it takes trust, right? The way to build trust is to set expectations and then go meet or exceed them. And I think we're starting to see people being willing to say, hey, I, I'll open the door. Let's set some expectations, go meet or exceed them. And they, and they start to build this trust. And we're seeing it with providers and educators doing some amazing things. I mean, some of the data and evidence is really very compelling too. That's awesome. All right. So our five questions, the first one is probably the hardest. And then after that, we got to get rapid fire going. So the first is the podcast is called more than a test because at Amira, we believe our assessment is more than a test. We're trying to get teachers to think past the, um, three year, uh, three times a year benchmark and think more about like understanding their data every day of where a kid is. Right. So it's this new idea around assessment, but everybody else hears it as something different. So when you heard more than a test, what did you think? Uh, I thought about skills, uh, actual skill building credentials that, oh. that, that I think about the fact that, uh, you know, it more than a test means competency means, means ownership means student agency to me that, uh, Hey, we can evaluate it, but really it's about like, did we learn this and can we put it into the world? 
Okay. Can you tell us about one literary moment in your life? So a moment with you and a book that really stands out as a life-changing moment. Yeah. When I grew up, uh, I grew up in a three generation household with my grandparents, my mother and I, and we would drive, we had some, uh, we did summer road trips. My mother was a teacher. So that two weeks after school, uh, that she was teaching my grandparents, we would, uh, take these massive road trips and we would drive for the morning, stop at some little motel, usually go to some civil war, you know, war memorial or something. And, uh, you know, have pizza, swim in the pool, get up the next day, do it, do it again. And, um, you know, I remember in fourth grade, uh, reading Charlie and the chocolate factory, Roald Dahl. Um, and, um, uh, uh, excuse me, the great glass elevator. And that like six hours passed like that. And I was like, man, this reading is awesome. And, uh, so that, that's, uh, that's where I fell in love with reading. That's awesome. Um, a piece of technology or a technology product that you're really excited about. Uh, I'm, um, uh, I'm very interested in the opportunity that, that AI presents, uh, for safe and equitable expansion. So it's a capacity and a capability. It's not a single, uh, single technology, but I do think it has the opportunity to be transformative societally, but definitely in education. That's great. Um, so if someone wanted to replicate your success, cause like you've done a you, you found a problem that really needed to be solved and just in beautiful and magical ways solved that problem oh, for so you. many schools and districts. If someone wanted to do something like that in their lives, what would, what's the best advice you would give them? Uh, talk to, talk to prospects and customers and truly listen to what the problems are, uh, as early and often as you can. All right. And one book everyone should read. Oh, uh, I loved, uh, seven eaves. I think it's Neil Stevenson, uh, just open like sci-fi sort of generally opens my brain to different stuff. And, uh, I found seven eaves to be a fantastic read. Awesome. Well, those are our questions. That's our time. Thank you so much for being here. This has been just enlightening. I, it's been really fun to talk about technology with you. And, um, I, I really hope people go and look up the articles we talked about because it's, there's some great information there. I appreciate it, Laura. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.